Markham, Richmond Hill, Vaughan. From everywhere you are. Aurora, Newmarket, East Willemberry. This is The Feed. Georgina, King, Whitchurch, Stovall. The Feed is York Region's only news magazine dedicated to the issues, events, and stories that matter to the people that live and work here. Welcome to The Feed. I'm Ann Romer. Vaccinations for all. Let's unpack the very latest on the virus that just won't quit and the vaccines aimed at keeping us protected. Almost every age group in this province is now eligible for a shot in the arm. Last week, Health Canada approved Moderna's pediatric vaccine for children six months to five years. And the Ontario government announced that all adults would now be eligible for the second booster. Kind of stirs up a lot of questions, though. Are parents comfortable having their babies and toddlers vaccinated against COVID-19? And adults now eligible for the second booster. Are they rolling up their sleeves right now or are they waiting for the fall? Colin Furness is an infection control epidemiologist and is here to help us navigate the murky COVID-19 vaccine waters. Welcome to the feed, Colin. Good to have you with us again. Great. Thank you for having me. So Dr. Kieran Moore stated last week that healthy people under 60 who've had three doses already may want to wait until fall for a second booster. A little bit confusing to roll it out now but also say, well, you can wait if you wish. How do we take that? I don't understand why he would frame it that way. I think when a, when a booster is made available, given everything we know, all of our experience with the vaccine, with COVID, it behooves us to use it. It behooves us to, to take it up. And the problem I think that he may have underestimated is it confuses people because people are trying to find consistency in messaging. And if you are not consistently saying the vaccine is a useful thing to keep you safe, to keep your family safe, people start to hear things like, oh, the vaccine is dangerous, right? So it sows hesitation, it sows confusion, and that's going to drive down uptake. An Angus Reid poll was released on July 18th. 50% of those asked want boosters ASAP. Two in five are among those vaccinated aren't sold on a second shot. And one in five respondents say that they don't believe the shot is effective in preventing serious illness. So what are the takeaways from that particular survey? To me, that screams communications failure. It it just says that we have not done a great job at explaining to people what the data mean and why. So the most common thing I hear, complaint I hear is, well, vaccinations are going up and so is COVID. And that, you know, that, that doesn't really make any sense. Or a lot of people who are hospitalized have been vaccinated, so the vaccine doesn't work. And when you actually tease apart the statistics, it's really clear that vaccines have an enormous beneficial effect, but it takes a long time to kind of explain why those numbers don't mean necessarily what they look like they mean before they've been interpreted and and, and made to be sensible. So that is a big problem, and we just don't have the resources as a society to sit down with everyone who doesn't have that literacy to explain it. And so if we're not doing clear communication, and we're sowing distrust or we're allowing distrust to take root, um, we end up having people moving away from this messaging, uh, embracing the idea that maybe they just shouldn't, maybe they should just stay away. And that's harmful to me. That's very harmful. You know, there are also rumblings that a vaccine tailored to fight Omicron and its subvariants like BA5 might be rolled out in the fall. That again just makes the, the COVID-19 vaccine waters even muddier. <laughs> Yes, it, it, I mean, it makes the situation more complicated, again, without 
for, for those who just don't have a lot of training or experience in this, I think, yes, it can be really, really bewildering. Now, the one thing that Dr. Moore said that I think was enormously useful was if you get a fourth shot now, you're not disqualified from an Omicron booster later, because that was a concern I had. That would have been the one thing if we made a policy decision that said, if you pick A, you can't have B, that would have made me concerned. Um, and I'm very glad he said that, and he said that very, very clearly. That was that was the one piece of information I was looking for. And and so what I think people need to hear is the vaccine is effective. The problem is that COVID is evolving away from it, and so it it's not it's not as wonderful as it was a year and a half ago when it was introduced. And that's no one's fault. Uh, but the vaccine is still enormously effective at, at at preventing serious illness and death. We know this. We know this from the statistics. It just isn't being made clear to people. I'm going to pull some headlines out from under both of us. The WHO saying that cases have tripled in the past six weeks across Europe. And of course, in Canada, it was just announced that uh, there would be random testing at airports uh, to try to determine whether new variants are coming in. What are your thoughts on that? Well, the the discourse around testing at airports has been so confused because it's been conflated with delays at airports. And one, of course, has nothing to do with the other. And as you said quite correctly, the the random testing at airports, that's not actually meant to to prevent cases. It's actually surveillance. It's meant to say, well, given that we're allowing unfettered travel, we should probably have some sense as to what what kind of COVID is showing up on our shores. And it's it's a smart program, but it's really been attacked and assailed as meaningless or unnecessary or causing delays. None of those things are true. Uh, Public health relies on doing what's called surveillance, disease surveillance, which includes doing these sorts of tests when you've got uh, a threat coming in. And and I think that's that's really, really important. But, But it gets framed in a way... I think that confuses people. Interesting. I heard on the radio, probably our station, a quote from an infectious diseases specialist who said, rather than random testing, hey, how about testing the wastewater of the airport? And I thought, boy, that leaves me scratching my head. <laughs> I know who that is. And that's, that is a, uh, that's an individual who I think knows a lot about infectious disease, but has no credentials, training or expertise in epidemiology, public health or surveillance. And so, you know, that, that, that actually really, really matters. Uh, I'm not an expert in wastewater testing. What you learn, but I can tell you, what you learn from wastewater testing is not detailed enough. Um, you get a very, very broad sense that there is COVID in the water, but the, the virus, by the time it goes through the wastewater, is likely to be quite degraded. I'm not sure how much typing is able to be done, uh, and that's, that's, not, that's actually not clear to me. But I, it, it's the, the, the idea that we're going to do random testing of people arriving, this is not new. Public health has been doing that for 100 years when needed, and, and it's helpful. It's enormously useful. I love wastewater testing, but one is not quite substitutable for the other. Would you be so kind as to tell me, tell us your thoughts on where exactly we are right now? Are we in a seventh wave? And what, who's the culprit? Is it BA5? Uh, it is a seventh wave. There's no question. When we look at, again, wastewater signals, actually, that's the only reliable data we have to see where we're at to answer your question. Yes, we're in a seventh wave, and yes, it's BA5. BA5 does not seem to produce more serious illness, and that's great news, but it is very proficient at escaping prior immunity. So it's very good at, at, at immune escape, and that is what is making it so very, very successful. It's a natural thing for a virus to do, to evolve to be either more transmissible, so more effective at reproducing, or immune escape. Both of those, both pathways 
represent success for a virus. BA5 clearly is doing that. And that means it's moving away from vaccines. There's no question it is. And, and so that's, that's something that, again, can be easily misinterpreted. Vaccines are still effective, but BA5 has some tricks uh, that allow it to spread despite vaccination to some extent. And, and it's concerning. It's too bad. Can we talk about the, the young ones, the babies, the toddlers? So six months to five years of age, the Moderna pediatric vaccine has been approved for use here in Canada. Will will that protect that age group? And will it be able to protect them from these these highly transmissible subvariants like BA5? The short answer is very much so. The worst thing you can do is be completely unvaccinated, is to have a completely naive immune system. That's true at any age, but of course, uh, uh, you know, up until now, it's been 100% true for everyone under five. This is why hospitalization rates for kids under five have been so high, so dreadfully high. This has been underreported, underrecognized, underdiscussed, but it is the statistics there are absolutely, in my mind, absolutely horrifying. And what we know in older children, where we have some experience with vaccination now, is that one form of long COVID, a very, a very unpleasant one, uh, multi-system inflammatory syndrome, uh, that is almost eliminated uh, after two doses, and it's greatly reduced even after one dose. So again, it's this, it's this dichotomy. The vaccine may not stop you from getting infected, but even one shot in kids is very helpful in terms of eliminating some of the more serious Uh, effects or outcomes and in children under five there's no reason to believe that that's any different we know the vaccine is quite safe for that group we know they mount a mediocre immune response to it so it's not it's not a panacea it's not a bulletproof shield but from all the data we have especially from older kids and given high hospitalization among those kids under five if I had a toddler right now, I would be getting them vaccinated as soon as I could. Interesting. I wasn't aware, and I'm not sure how many of our listeners are aware as well, that those numbers are so high that there have been hospitalizations for the five and under group. That, that is jaw-dropping for me. Well, in absolute terms, it's not a giant number. It's still going to be a fairly small percent. So if you're, in, if you're interested in rolling the dice and saying, well, I'm just going to cross my fingers, nothing horrible happens to my child, you'll probably be okay, but you'll really probably be okay if you take the step to vaccinate as well. So it's, it's something like one in four or one in 500 kids ends up in the hospital. That doesn't sound like a lot, but it does really add up. It really adds up. And if you have ever seen a baby struggling to breathe, I'm not a clinician, but I have seen that. It's, it's something you'll never forget, and it's something that you never really want to see. And so it's just with those tiny, tiny bodies that are so susceptible, uh, it, it's, it's something, you know, it, it kind of makes me tear up a little bit to think we can avoid this and we should be doing everything we can to avoid this. What do you say to parents and caregivers listening right now who still are reluctant to have their child vaccinated against COVID-19, their to- toddler, their baby? I guess it's a simple message. Everybody wants to protect their children. Everybody wants to keep their children safe. There's no debate about that. The question is, what is the bigger risk? Is it risky to vaccinate? Is it risky not to vaccinate? That's the central question. The data tells us that no matter what you do, there's risk, but the risk of not being vaccinated is so much higher. And I think that's the one thing that, that, that people really need to try and internalize, that, yes, there's, there's risks of being vaccinated, there are risks of not, but the risk difference is enormous. And that if you want to keep your child safe, that is the better choice. As I said earlier in this interview, this virus just won't quit. Is it around 
now forever, do you think? And will we be looking at vaccination after vaccination or to a yearly vaccination against COVID-19? What, what is the future, do you think, based on your, your research, your data, and what you know from the past? That is a really important question. I do know that virologists are, are, can't agree on this. And they know a lot more about viral evolution than I ever will. So I think it's a, it's a hard question to predict. What I can say is that the idea of it becoming endemic, uh, that is, that it's sort of always around, that is not good news. A lot of people have been throwing around the word endemic as if, well, that just means it's going to be like the common cold. No, actually, the problem is that COVID spike has, has very, very effective at, at, at latching all over your body, and that's not changing. So the, the idea of it becoming endemic somehow being a good thing is not actually the way we should be thinking about this. That I can say with, with considerable certainty. At this point, you know, and I've been optimistic in the past, and everyone who's been optimistic has been shown to be wrong, unfortunately. Mm. At this point, I think much depends on second-generation vaccines, maybe an intranasal vaccine that's able to stimulate more immune response in the mucosa, so in your nose and in your throat, uh, which some immunologists believe would be very effective at preventing people from getting infected. So there, there, might, be, there might be that. Um, we might come up with better uh, antivirals, so there might be better drugs available in the future. Those are the things we probably need to look for because COVID is a very serious adversary, very adaptive, very successful, and putting our heads in the sand and assuming that endemic means it's good or imagining that it'll somehow just go away on its own, I don't think those are going to play out. So I think vaccination and antivirals is probably where our best hope is of putting this behind us. Colin Furness, infection control epidemiologist, thank you so much for spending your time with us on the feed. Much appreciated. My pleasure, thanks. After the break, the need for affordable housing. Do you have a story idea for the feed? Call us at 416-335-1059 or email info at 1059theregion.com. Ann Romer and more of the feed coming up. This is 1059 The Region. Welcome back to the feed. Real estate is still one of the most sought-after acquisitions in spite of rising rates, red-hot inflation, and the cooling housing market. The Ontario Real Estate Association is spearheading a campaign to help keep the dream of home ownership alive. CEO Tim Hudak joins us now with the critical challenges and some straightforward solutions. Welcome to the feed, Tim Hudak. What a pleasure. Thanks for joining us. Uh, and great to, great to hear your voice again. Thanks for having me on. It's a critical issue for... Uh, Canadians, and just great to be on, on the feed, the voice of York Region. I know that's a huge issue throughout York as well. Oh, you and thanks for your voice on that. That's fantastic. <laughs> so let's talk about the challenges of home ownership at this point. So we've got rising interest rates, and there's no stopping that. The high cost of living. We look at the inflation numbers just out earlier this week, and oof, cooling markets and soaring rents. What do we as prospective homeowners do with all of this information? Well, make sure you work with a real estate professional. It, it can be very complex. It can change uh, rather quickly. And you want to make sure you get the best advice possible when it comes to what is the biggest purchase or sale, right, in, in our lifetimes. Um, just, just on your opening comments there, Anna, there, there, I agree there is something just very compelling to us about the Canadian dream of, of home ownership. It, 
is something that drives us as, uh, as human beings. It's been a great part of, of Canada's history because each generation had a better chance of owning a home than the one before it. You know, the parents, the grandparents, it was an upward trajectory where people could have the keys to a great place to call home. It was a, it's a great investment that pays off in the long run. It's a place where you most feel yourself, you feel safe, you feel, you feel secure. But in about 2016, and we headed in the wrong direction. The amount of homeowners in our country started to decline. The dream was slipping away. And, and our job at the Ontario Real Estate Association uh, is to help create that next generation of Canadian homeowners. And we have some good ideas on how to do just that. So how do you, at this point, keep the dream alive for a lot of people? Because we've got this issue of rising interest rates. But we're also seeing a little window of opportunity, perhaps, because the market is cooling. So how do we make sense of that? Well, there's no doubt that when the interest rates uh, went up and a bit of economic uncertainty, you know, gas prices, inflation, all of that, uh, it did cause a number of actors in the real estate market, both buyers and sellers, to take a, a bit of a pause. And as a result, you're seeing a lot less uh, activity uh, out there. You mentioned there's a bit of opportunity, and, that, and that's true, right? In every market, there's going to be some opportunity. What some will say, and it's maybe true in parts of York region, but again, work with your realtor to see if it makes sense for you. The cost of borrowing have increased, right? Variable mortgages have, have gone up. Fixed rates will be moving up as interest rates are, are increasing, that means the cost of borrowing goes up. Your dollar doesn't go as far in purchasing a home. Um, however, there have been some price declines in certain classes of homes in certain areas. So there may be a sliver of opportunity there where you actually your borrowing costs uh, increases less than the cost of the home you may find yourself ahead. But that's a unique circumstance. You know, get the best advice possible. But the bottom line to that, Anne, I'll, I'll reinforce it. You know, rising interest rates make us all poor. It, it is not the way to solve the affordability crisis. The number of real estate exchanges as a whole is down a lot, and, and that means actually that we're, we're seeing the dream slip further away. The best way to address helping people get a great place to call home is increasing housing supply. And therein lies the issue. And we look to the federal government, we look to the provincial government, as well as municipal governments to see where all of this can start to take place. And where do you believe that that this should be generated from? Who should be responsible for more affordable housing? Yeah, great, great question, Ann. And and think of the the Olympics, right, where there's the gold, the silver, and the bronze, and picture those boxes. Really, it is the provincial government uh, in Canada uh, that has the greatest role. They're the gold medal when it comes to increasing housing supply and choice and affordability. The silver really goes to municipalities. Typically, the province gives municipalities a toolbox when it comes to housing. Some do a good job at using those tools and creating more affordable opportunities. Others leave the toolbox on the shelf. Lastly, the federal government does play a role in areas like interest rates, for sure, and and borrowing policies. Um, But uh, they actually play the most distant role when it comes to getting more homes in the market that average Canadian families can afford. Nonetheless, you know, we work on all three rolling in the same direction. Interesting. I heard earlier this week on the radio uh, a comment by someone uh, after hearing that Premier Ford is floating the idea of giving more powers to the City of Toronto Mayor and the City of, of Ottawa Mayor. And someone sort of drew a line connecting that information to perhaps the changes in zoning, uh, municipal zoning, which would free up the ability to create more affordable housing. I mean, is that a long shot? I will tell you that the policy ID mentioned 
addressing our outdated 1970s area zoning rules is a major obstacle to home ownership. Um, should be a primary goal of our province and our, our large municipalities. Whether the new legislation, we haven't seen it yet, helps in that. If it, if it does, great. Let, let me just give you an example that I think we can all visualize here on the feed today. So, so picture a, a wartime, you know, bungalow in, in Richmond Hill or, or Vaughan or, you know, in Niagara, where, where I'm from. And it's past its age. It's got a lot of wear and tear. Currently, and in the province, a homeowner, she could tear that down and build a four-story monster home for the family. Right? That, that's the right. We support it. It's their property. You're certainly seeing a lot of that in York Region neighborhoods. But that only helps, you know, one well-off family get ahead. If that owner decided to knock that home down and instead build a duplex, a townhome, a triplex, where maybe three young families could get a start and get a place to call home, holy smokes, they go through this red tape ringer, the NIMBYs come out and oppose a project, it goes through a process that could take over a year with lots of legal expenses and such, and that homeowner just throws up her hands and, and says, forget it, and those homes never get created. So there's an example of how we could level the playing field you could do the monster home, you keep the current home, or if the property allows have a duplex on that property for more affordable home ownership, it should be a level playing field. That kind of zoning change would make a big difference, particularly for millennials trying to get their foot into the marketplace of owning a home. Just before the last provincial election, the Ontario Real Estate Association, you uh, put together something called Home for Everyone, a report card released just before the election. Here are some of the things that I saw that stood out for me. You were hoping that the the government, whoever that would be, because this was before the election, would encourage green initiatives in the housing and real estate space. You also talked about implementing measures to get dirty money out of Ontario real estate. What does that mean? So a big part of our job is putting ideas on the table for, for all political parties, and we're successful in that, whether it was the Conservatives, the Liberals, the Democrats, or Green. They all had party um, platforms that included some of our pro-home ownership ideas, really and focused on creating more starter homes and looking forward for that first-time home buyer. Uh, the move-up home, big in York region, the kids come along, you want a bit more space, and then quality rental. So that's what our goal is. And then we always want to make sure, too, that you know, law-abiding Canadians have the first shot at one of these uh, new homes or resales. We have a big problem in Canada when it comes to illegal money laundering, particularly into real estate. Here's basically uh, how it happens. So you know, picture an overseas a drug lord or a corrupt political official uh, in, a, in a corrupt regime abroad, and they want to hide their money somewhere where they know it's safe. Real estate is an attractive option for them. And what they do is they hide behind a numbered company. So you don't know if it's Pablo Escobar's niece buying the property because it's company one, two, five, six, seven, eight. And then that means that somebody with illegal money has snapped up a property that a, that a law-abiding Canadian should have access to. And it also means they're getting away with their crimes. So we've called for what's called a beneficial ownership registry. So take away that veil they hide behind reveal who the owners are, and then make it publicly searchable so that police forces in South America or Asia or whatever can see where the money is going. You can shut that down and make sure that that home is available to law-abiding Canadians. They've done this sort of thing in the United Kingdom, in the European Union. The Americans have closed the doors, but that has meant a flood of illegal money coming into Canada, particularly targeting real estate. There was a recent probe into BC's money laundering problem. So what were the findings on that and what can be applied to Ontario? 
Well, we think Ontario is going to be uh, worse uh, than British Columbia. They certainly found this is a major issue in the, I think, over $20 billion they thought of real estate in British Columbia being snapped up by illegal means. They found, for example, the Hells Angels uh, were owning a number of properties uh, as real estate investments for their illegal proceeds uh, in, uh, in British Columbia. We can do this quite easily. We, we currently have Terranet, which is a land registry in the province. Terranet does track foreign purchases of properties. So it's a tool that Ontario could quickly develop to make sure that we shut off this flow of illegal money coming across our borders and make sure that homes go in the marketplace that Canadians can actually buy them, not the niece or nephew of an overseas criminal. Tim Hudak, indexing the land transfer tax rebate to inflation, how will that help? There's two things we could really do to help out that frustrated, you know, first-time home buyer uh, listening uh, right now. Number one, to make sure we actually uh, create more homes in the marketplace that are affordable and targeted first-time home buyers. I'm happy to get a number of ideas on how we can do just that. I've worked in other jurisdictions. And then secondly, just give them a bit of a leg up in the competition. So right now there's something called the first-time home buyers tax credit. It waives a part of that land transfer tax when you purchase a home. Now, the values of homes have gone up tremendously in the last five, six years, and that value has not been adjusted as a result. You know, if we had our way, we'd say for a first-time home buyer, waive that land transfer tax altogether. Help them get in the marketplace. We do know that when people buy a home, they spend a tremendous amount of money in the economy. They usually fix up that home. They'll buy furniture, new appliances some repairs and, and renovations, the spinoff from a new home purchase, um, whether it's a resale home or a brand new home, tends to be about $80,000. So you talk about economic benefit. So our point of view is waive that land transfer tax altogether or at the very least have it catch up to modern real estate prices because once you get your foot on that first rung of the homeownership ladder and it's easier to climb up the ladder, the hardest part getting the market in the first place. And where does ARIA stand when it comes to the rent-to-own home ownership model? This is another way that uh, we see helping uh, first-time buyers or you know those that own a home and want to get a bigger home uh, finding their way forward. Look, if you come from a wealthy family, right? You, you come from a family that has all kinds of money saved up or they're homeowners themselves and they could lend to their kids money, um, those are the folks that tend to be doing better in the real estate market. But if you come from more modest means, the family, you don't have the bank of mom and dad to rely upon. It's really hard to get in the marketplace today. So I mentioned a moment ago, waiving the land transfer tax for first-time home buyers. Another idea is there's some modern technologies that will help you finance the purchase of your home. It's kind of like the rent-to-own program we had in the 70s and 80s with a modern twist. So here's how it works. There may be some patient money that sees a reward in investing in real estate in the long run. It could be a pension fund. It could be uh, an investor, and you would work with them through a technology app that would help them help you make that crucial down payment on a new home. As we all know, it's not often the mortgage payments; it's the, the down payment that's the biggest obstacle for first-time home buyers. And then you pay them off over time. Or one of the typical models today is when you sell the home down the road, they get part of the upside. We think this new financial technology, which is actually blocked today because of outdated red tape, that will give opportunity to more first-time home buyers to finance the purchase of their home. Wow. What you've just said in this interview, there is hope for those of us who want to own a piece of Canada. That is for sure. 
Uh, how would people find out more? How can they learn about your campaign or, or what it is that you stand for or how you can help any of us achieve the dream of home ownership? The best way to follow you know, what we're doing is to go to OREA, O-R-E-A.com. We regularly uh, have the information there about what's happening in the housing market, what consumers are looking for and buyers and sellers and how those shifts uh, are changing, and also very important to our, our advocacy. I, I like, Ann, your, your, your hopeful message there. I, I do believe that we can get the Canadian dream of homeownership back on its feet, that we can create more Canadian homeowners. The ideas are, are, are there. I mentioned the zoning issues. You can intensify along major subway and go links, for example, helpful to York Region. There's surplus government properties that are not used or underutilized that could be converted into housing commercial properties as well that need to be underutilized and you get mixed-use residential and commercial. There's land that is not environmentally sensitive that can be used for new developments as long as we speed up the approval process and not have it drag out for five to ten years. So the ideas are out there. We just need governments and the political courage to make it happen and help people get the keys to a great place to call home. Hmm. Good stuff. CEO of the Ontario Real Estate Association, Tim Hudak, thank you so much for spending so much time with us on the feed. It was great. Well, and my pleasure. Thanks for having me on the feed, and thanks for your interest in helping more people become homeowners in our province. Support for businesses in debt is complicated, and as Kevin Frankish explains, it often affects more than the bottom line. Tomorrow is International Self-Help Day. It's a chance for you to do just that, help yourself, live a better life. A lot of it has to do with eating better, sleeping better, taking care of your physical health, but it also has to do very much with your mental health. And there is nothing really that impacts your mental health more than your finances, especially if you are a small business owner. Small businesses, as we know, have gone through hell and back in the last couple of years, and many are in danger of just disappearing. Joanne Russo is from uh, the Russo Corporation, a licensed insolvency trustee in Aurora. Hi, Joanne. Hi. How are you? I am fine. It, it's kind of unusual to talk about self-help day, improving your physical and mental health, and also about insolvency. Uh, well, I don't look at it that way because, for many reasons, because the two go hand in hand. Mental health and money are, are connected mm-hmm. in so many ways. I mean, the hardest challenge uh, that we, we tell everyone that comes through our doors is you've made it this far. When they sort of step back and look at how long they've been carrying this, this, this burden over their shoulders and the worry and the stress and the anxiety that comes along with it, we say to them, you've done it. You've come here. You're actually going to speak to a team of professionals that are going to let you know what the options are that are available for you. And the rest is just easy. It's us giving you the path and sort of rethinking and regrouping um, and providing you with options that are available for you to get that fresh start. So uh, it's amazing in, uh, in so many ways the pressure we put on ourselves to think that um, there are no solutions and, and the worry that we that individuals have spent over the years just beating themselves as far as, you know, how do I deal with this or what do I do? And, and you know, the, the financial struggles that it's put on myself and on my family is just incredible. So the mental health is a big part 
of, uh, of insolvency, 100%. It's a major uh, mistake that people make that an insolvency trustee is someone you go to simply to work out a bankruptcy. Absolutely not. I mean, you come here and are, you come here to sort of get direction. The, the biggest stigma behind insolvency is the fact that not everybody is aware of what this process is, is all about, um, what options are available for them. And it's not all doom and gloom. It's a process that's there to help you. It's a process that's there to relieve the stress, to allow you to get back on your feet. And that applies regardless if you're a, if you're a business owner, if you're an individual who just needs some sort of guidance. When you see a licensed insolvency trustee, you're, you're turning to them so that they can better help you understand your situation and let you know what options are available for you. There's nothing wrong with seeking advice. I always say that all the time. You want to make an informed decision, an educated decision, and there should be absolutely no shame about it because um, I can truly say, especially during this pandemic, we've all sort of taken a step back and sort of looked at ourselves and said, okay, so what are we going to do now? What, you know, how are we going to manage our day-to-day because we've just been hit with a storm? And talking about it and, and, and about, you know, what options are there is the greatest thing you can give yourself. Are there a number of options? There are a number of options. And sometimes, you know, you know I always say there's, there's options of an informal process where you can say, okay, let me absorb this information. Let me take it away. Let's see what I can do, which is, a, which is something that you're sort of self-reflecting, which is great. You can talk about a proposal option where most individuals say, no, I, you know what, I understand why I'm here. And I really, truly want to make a deal with my creditors. And we'll go through that process and letting you know what that means for you. And the bankruptcy option, which is not a bad option. I mean, sometimes we've carried this debt for so long. We've exhausted all our means by trying to make the minimum payments. And we simply cannot because of our circumstances. So um, the options are simple enough. It's just a matter of understanding them. It's interesting what you say that bankruptcy isn't always the worst thing. It's not. It's not. And I think it's just a matter of not understanding it and and um, hearing what others might have to say about it. But it's, I always use the example as going to mechanic. I'm not going to pretend how to fix my car because I just simply don't know the mechanics around repairing a vehicle. Well, it's still different than going to speak to a professional about let, let me understand you know, why I'm here and what can be done about it. And once you understand the tools that are given to you, the process sort of seems to fall into place because one of the key things that we notice with many individuals that come to our office is we beat ourselves. We are the hardest critics when it comes to ourselves. And um, I'm no differently. If I've, you know, gone down some sort of path, I'm going to run down that path 101 times to make sure and understand why did it happen. But when you go and you sit with someone, they'll give you a different perspective as to, okay, this is what's gone wrong or this is what's happened. Now let's try to correct it. And one of the, one of the things that is very tough <clears throat> when you are facing any sort of a mental health issue is that first step reaching out for help because mm-hmm. you feel like a loser. You, you feel that stigma, ashamed, uh, that you got yourself in this situation. 
but you see this every day. So if someone comes in, they're probably not going to have a story that is, is, is going to be something you haven't heard before. I, I sort of say every story is unique, and I always take away something from everybody's story because the, the feeling everybody feels is sort of similar. You know, I, I haven't, I've lost sleep. I, I don't want to pick up the phone. I, I'm, you know, I'm having marital issues. I'm, I'm lying to my spouse. I'm lying to my girlfriend. I'm waking up in the middle of the night. That's the same. That's the mental issues and concerns that everybody is feeling, the anxiety, the depression. But the causes, and, and, and like I said earlier, the fact that we end up beating ourselves over it because we're just scared. We just don't know where to turn. Um, and not understanding that there are, there is a solution. It's just a matter of getting here. Once you get here and you, and, you know, we say to individuals, we're not here to judge your story. I mean, this process is not here to judge you. This process is here to help you. And once you see that, you sort of have this lifting of relief where you say, wow, I wish I did this sooner. I can't believe it. I can't believe I put myself through that. It's important to think that way, uh, that if you're going to go it's, in and see an insolvency trustee, that you're not going in to Canada Revenue and being grilled or, or, or sitting there and being judged. It, it, it's actually uh, a positive experience. A very positive experience, and it should be. You want to be able to work with a trustee that can listen, can understand your situation, uh, can let you know what your options are, um, and can guide you through that process. Because it's not a one-day thing. It's not a one-day event. It, it, you know, you've 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 been in that situation for a very long time, and now it's our job to teach you how to get out of this process and to pro- give you the tools so that you can recognize, you know, that it's you shouldn't put yourself in that situation, and, and if you are to fall back in that situation again, this is what we're going to do about it. So it's, it's, it's a process that is there to help you, to bring awareness, and in many ways to educate you, because, you know, sometimes things are beyond our control. If we look at today's times in the pandemic, no one predicted we're going to be in this pandemic. So it's not something that we have physically control over. But we want to be able to give the tools so that we can say, okay, I'm going to wake up today and this is what I'm going to do for myself to make sure that I give myself a great day. I think it's something that we all should be teaching ourselves because we're all in the same boat when it comes to that sort of situation. So having control and being able to have awareness and be able to be given the tools is what you want to get out of this process. All right, so if people do have questions, I bet you we've sort of piqued some curiosities. Uh, they can get in touch with you. Your your office is in Aurora, pretty well right in, uh, right downtown at uh, Wellington yes. and Young Street. What's the best way to get in touch with you? Um, give us a call. Uh, email is great. Uh, 905-503-3328 is our phone number or our website, Russo Can Help. And it's Russo, R-U-S-S-O, Can Help. Dot com. So thank you very much for this. Um, I was just thinking, too, you might even uh, save, uh, by going to see, you might save some money on a marriage counselor as well. <laughs> it's amazing. That's true. That's true. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much, Joanne Russo, for talking with thank me. Thank you.
Rising inflation means almost everything costs more. Leanne Castellino from Where Parents Talk with money-saving meal planning tips. Our guest today is the Director of Culinary at HelloFresh Canada. HelloFresh is the world's leading meal kit company. It operates in more than 15 countries around the world. Chef Corby Sue Newman is also a mother of two, and she joins us today from Richmond Hill, Ontario. Thanks so much for being here. Leanne, it is so good to see you again. Great to see you as well. I want to dig right in, Corby Sue, because spending, and in particular food spending these days in North America, frankly, is deeply impacting all of us. Rising inflation, a whole host of other factors. It's really impacting what we are choosing at the grocery store to buy and to eat at home. So tell us, what trends are you seeing from your end as somebody who works in the food solutions industry? So the demand for what we provide our service, I think people have really, um, over the last couple of years, realized that a meal kit like HelloFresh is really doing all the hard work for you. It's the preparation. Before that, it's the planning. It's making sure you get what you need um, and making sure that you don't overspend. You know, Leanne, Often we talk about, oh, what are we spending weekly? That number is going up. And on average, Canadians are spending anywhere from $200 to $250 a week on groceries. I don't know about you, but even with my meal kit, um, sometimes if there's a special occasion, it can even be a wee bit more. So I think that number might be on the conservative side as inflation goes up. Um, Here's the thing. Inflation is going up, but we still need to eat. So people are looking for practical, affordable solutions that are convenient. And I think the word convenient is something that we still very much need. So true. So let's unpack that a little bit more. Clearly, you're talking about how to keep things affordable for families with children, for families with growing children. What tips and strategies can you share to keep that food spending manageable? Absolutely. So I've I've got a couple of thoughts on it. Um, Obviously, I'm really lucky. Uh, I've been in the commercial food space for 20 plus years and the meal kit industry really appealed to me because I I recognized, wow, it's actually doing what I, you know, as a working parent also struggled with, believe it or not. Uh, It's like the joke, the shoemaker's children have no shoes. Sometimes Mm -hmm. when you're a working chef, your kids are eating two minute noodles. I mean, that's the reality. So it goes back to um, the planning. So actually blocking time in your calendar weekly, because let's be honest, eating happens daily and it doesn't just happen out of nowhere. And to leave it to, you know, that 4.30 decision, don't do that. So actually put some time in your calendar to either do it yourself, get together with your family, whatever your family looks like, and talk about what do we want to eat today or this week. Write that list. So if you're not going to use a meal kit, Make sure that when you go into the grocery store, you've got that list. And one of the things I've said to my children, having run previously my own small food businesses, and even today, I said, buy as if it was your business. So spend that money as if it's your business, because once you have spent it, it ain't coming back. And if you're not going to eat it, you've lost it. And that's something else that's really distressing the numbers uh, as to what Canadians are throwing out on a weekly, yearly basis. So the other tip that I share with my kids is 
this three use rule. So if we're shopping, and by the way, take your kids shopping with you when they're little, or if you're choosing recipes online, get them to be with you, engage them, show them that eating and cooking um, are not, you know, mutually exclusive. They often um, complement each other and, you know, really instill in them it's a life skill. But that three-use rule is if we're shopping and, you know, Grocery stores are very clever. This is on sale. Buy three for one. And I look at it and I stand there and I think, okay, I'll buy it. But do I have three ways that I would use it? So just off the top of my head, yogurt. There might be a sale on yogurt. And I'll be like, okay, but I know that my kids only eat it, you know, once or twice a week for breakfast. Well, how else would I use it? Oh, I'm going to make um, chicken tandoor tikka. Oh, I can use it in a marinade. Oh, I've got some bananas. I'm going to do some baking. So now I've hit three uses. So now I feel confident I'm going to use that product by its use by date and I'll buy it. So those are my two really big tips. Um, treat your money for food as if it was a business and three uses for each ingredient you buy. Those are great tips, and they really speak to the idea of having that plan before you enter a grocery store and really putting thought into that process. Now, Corby Sue, you mentioned that you've got two kids. I'm curious, what does a cost-effective meal plan include in your home? I'll be completely honest. Um, we do use a meal kit, so that represents um, anywhere between three to four meals a week. But let's break it down. Um, I've got a 19-year-old son who's just finished um, his education. He works full-time. He works remotely. So, you know, three to four um, meals a week, that's covered. But now I've got to think about breakfast, lunch, and a couple of other dinners. So I do actually budget for takeout food. And again, we did a survey recently and see that Canadians on average are spending anywhere between 20 and $100 on take out food each week. I mean, you do the math, that starts to add up. So take out food is a once a week treat. I'm not going to lie. I'm human like everyone else. I need a break from the pans. So that's what we do. But we don't go beyond that. And so it's really about when I'm doing that shopping, and then even just from a time management perspective, the meals that we are cooking, I make sure that they are convertible. I'd like to call them convertible recipes. I don't think that this is ground um, breaking news for anyone, but leftovers are, they're a savior for us because I've got, you know, uh, two kids with healthy appetites. I make sure that dinner can convert into lunch. And I make sure that that, you know, from a food safety perspective is all good. I'm not cooking chicken, hoping it lasts five days. I'm cooking it, hoping it lasts two days. So convertible recipes, cook a little bit more. Here's the other thing, Leanne, seasonality. If, if I shop what's in season, I'm going to get it at a better price. I can probably buy a bit more. And so I also have shown my kids how to think about food in different ways. So when asparagus are in peak season, I'm like, we're buying more. It's really inexpensive now. And we're pickling some. So we've got some in the fridge. We've got some in the cold store. Um, we cut some up. They're already in um, freezer bags for when I want to do a quick stir fry. It's just honestly thinking like my grandmother used to think. That's what we need today. Certainly now more than ever, definitely. Now for kids who are going to be going away to college, university, 
the temptation to order out, to eat processed foods is pretty high. It's ever present. What advice could you provide them and certainly to their parents about how to simplify meal preparation while they're living on their own? I really encourage parents to to recognize food as a language. If your child is fortunate enough to have grown up in a home where um, meals weren't always delivered to the front door, um, they actually were cooked, you know, I hope you have a little bit of time getting them involved. Um, But if you haven't, listen, treat it as if you are cramming for an SAT. Like you need to figure out how to teach your children really basic skills. How do you boil some pasta? Uh, how do you make a great bowl? So bowls are still all the rage. And that's really simple. Meal kits uh, for HelloFresh for college kids. You know, we see parents actually do that when kids first move out of home. There's something really empowering about preparing your own meal um, away from home for the first time. So set your kids up for success. And here's another thing, Leanne, flavor, flavor, flavor. In North America, in particular here in Canada, we have complex taste buds. Send your kids off to college with all the information they need to be safe, but send them off with some spice blends, some salt, some pepper. I know it sounds really simple, but, you know, they literally could turn a packet of uh, noodles into something fabulous if they had some spice blends. I really feel that for parents, invest the time. Again, a meal kit service is like a great teacher. Tons of wonderful tips and strategies. Corby Sue Newman, Director of Culinary at HelloFresh Canada, thank you so much for your time and your insight today. Pleasure. Happy cooking. When we come back, the Vaughn Mayor's farewell. Follow us on Twitter at 1059 The Region. Ann Romer and more of the feed after the break. This is 1059 The Region. Welcome back to the feed. June the 1st, just last month, Vaughn's long-serving mayor, Maurizio Bevilacqua, dropped a bombshell at a fundraising event telling a captive audience that he would not be seeking re-election on October the 24th. Maurizio Bevilacqua still has four months left in the mayor's chair, and it seems that he is more inspired than ever to get as much done as possible for the city he loves before he says farewell. We welcome the outgoing mayor to the feed, and Mayor Bevilacqua, I've got to ask you this first and foremost. Why did you make this decision not to run? I made that decision uh, essentially because I think that when I was first elected in 2010, I had goals and objectives that I wanted to meet, and I've met those. Uh, the litmus test uh, is always in reference to success or failure in an organization and or in any kind of endeavor, human endeavor, is whether you leave the place better than you found it. Mm. And I can confidently say that the city of Vaughan is better off today than it was back in 2010. And of course, I didn't do it on my own. I had great collaboration from the citizens of Vaughan who continue to inspire me to do great things uh, for them. It's through cooperative uh, spirit as well as really living the servant leadership style that uh, I do think that, that you can uh, achieve things that are that are important to the lives of, uh, of individuals. And I, I'm always driven by this deep desire to, um, to improve the human condition, which, by the way, I think it's the purpose of life. Yeah. The purpose of life is to improve the human condition. And uh, we as human beings do that in, in different ways. Uh, 
You do it through communication. You do it by keeping us up to date on what's going on in the world and by providing your insight. That is your purpose. That is what you are, are doing as in your in your line of work. And it's. I think even when I think of you, and I, I think that it's not really work that you're doing. It's uh, You've answered the call, and you've answered uh, a call in a way that uh, speaks to your devotion and commitment uh, to making sure that people are well-informed, that they are aware, and that is how you are improving the human condition in a very deep way. And I, I like to think that you are improving the human condition in many ways. And let's talk about something that is so important to the human condition and to the human being, and that's health care. Tell me what you think of, of all that you have done and inspired in terms of health care, hospitals, medical schools, that sort of thing. What, what is top of mind for you? Well, what is top of mind for me is, you know, as I look back from uh, 2010 to, to now, 2022, uh, with uh, four months left in the mandate. You know, back in 2010, we didn't have a subway, we didn't have a, a Bonn Metropolitan Center, we didn't have a university, we didn't have a hospital, we did not have 70,000 uh, new jobs, and we didn't have also the Spirit of Generosity Initiative that has helped over 200 organizations uh, bring about positive change to, uh, to people's lives. This journey continues. I've uh, stated that I want to bring a medical school and also York University to the city of Bonn, as I did with with Niagara University, and I remain very much committed uh, to that in the next four months. I will continue uh, to push for that, and I can also tell you I'll be pushing for that beyond my term in office as well, because I do think that uh, you need to finish things that you start, and I think that uh, we'll be positioned to to contribute in a way that uh, speaks to the continuation uh, of this uh, commitment. So there are many things I'm happy about. I'm also, as you know, uh, committed to making sure that the National Training Center for Soccer is built here in the city uh, because I think that is very important for both Canadian soccer but also uh, for our community as well. So the work that keeps going, it's something that uh, will continue beyond my term in office. I also want to talk about something very near and dear to you, the Cortellucci Vaughan Hospital. Yeah, well, and you know... It, Back then in 2010, you know, there were a lot of naysayers and people that thought that a hospital would never come to the city of Vaughan. And if there's one thing I learned from my experience dealing with the, the hospital that goes above and beyond the actual building of the hospital is to change the mindset uh, of a city to a more positive, a more forward-looking, uh, less negative, uh, less defeatist attitude to something that really, you know, is a shining example of what happens when you're committed, when you persevere, where you have tenacity, uh, we're able to bring people together. And, you know, I, I use the example of the ultimate campaign, a $250 million campaign. Uh, it's the largest campaign in North America for a city our size, for a hospital. And, uh, you know, I said that it, it would be done five years ago. I said that it would get done by June 1st, 2022, and it got done. And, uh, and, and the reason why I say this is because I think when you focus your energy to the to uh, the ultimate goal of achieving results that are positive and have positive impacts on people's lives and that's what happens now you can say these things and just say words but the beauty of it is the more you speak about things and actually achieve them then that gives you credibility and credibility matters in life and the only way you can be credible is by working very hard at achieving those goals 
I think of you and I think of the word generous and I think of of the word giving and also the spirit of generosity and and also at the core of what you've done in so many cases is major fundraising and encouraging others to join you with that endeavor. How important is the spirit of giving, generosity and fundraising to all things that have been accomplished by you in Vaughan? If I can be theological here for one second, I will say that St. Francis of Assisi used to say that it is in the giving that we receive. And so when you look at major donations that have been made, whether you know, 40, $40 million from you know the Cortellucci's and, and so many others that, that have given to uh, tens of millions, it's not so many so much the millions. You know, like I appreciate a person that gives you know twenty five cents, and people that give forty million, yeah. because it's giving. It's you know maybe it's actually harder for the person that's giving you a dollar because that person may not have the means than it is for a person who's giving you millions. And 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 the point I'm making is giving is giving is only giving when it hurts, and it's got to hurt a little. And because then there's a sacrifice associated with it, and I think that makes it even more meaningful. The spirit of generosity, you know, is uh, I started back in 2011. I know the 10th uh, anniversary. Even part of it is, you know, the gala that I just had, and it's very interesting, you know. And there was a, I painted something called uh, it's a painting. It's an oil on canvas. It's basically white with a uh, black point smack in the middle of the painting, and the painting is entitled "What's the Point." And that is the most, you know, the most important existential question that humanity always has to offer itself. And I and I and I presented that and then auctioned it off uh, at the mayor's gala. And by the way, the person bid was a million dollars for the painting, and so this million dollars will now go to help organizations in our, in our city improve the lives of people. And what I think it's important about that is that my painting was truly came out of you know my sense of. You know, promoting a, an idea, very simple, but, you know, in its simplicity addressed the complexity of life as well. Because when you look at what's the point, basically ask the fundamental question is, what is the point? The point of life, uh, the point of what you're doing here on Earth. Uh, it, it brings you to so many different places uh, that focuses your, your energy and attention to things that I think are extremely important and powerful uh, if one needs to make a contribution. So, you know, I've weaved a lot of things in my life, but there's a constant theme, and that is improving the human condition. So the, the $1 million that was raised as a result of that painting is going to help autistic children. It's going to help the hospital, hospices. It's going to be helping people that, uh, that truly need it. And it's, and it's a great way for people to, to contribute. You've been a politician since you were 28. You're now 62 years young. What is next for you? Are you going to remain on the political trail? Well, one thing I will say about myself, I trust uh, the universe, and I know this sounds a little bit esoteric out there, but it actually, actually do. I, I think that if you were to ask me right now, what are you going to do after November, after new council is sworn in, I can't tell you with 100% certainty, but I will tell you that it will be very much in keeping with my values, principles, and beliefs, because my actions as a human being are always aligned my values, principles, and beliefs, and that has given me clarity of purpose throughout my life. When I was 28, a lot of people doubted the fact that I could get elected. The only thing that kept me going was my inner, you know, belief in, in my inner self and, and the strength that uh, I've been given uh, through my family and uh, and my faith. And so, 
post uh, November, I will uh, still be there to to serve the citizens of Vaughn and perhaps beyond. Mayor Maurizio Bevilacqua, thank you so much for all you have done for the citizens of Vaughn, and thank you for the time that you've spent with us here on 105.9 The Region. I've really enjoyed it. It's been an honor and a privilege. Thank you so much. If you missed any part of our show, please go to 1059theregion.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, and Audible. I'm Ann Romer. Thank you for listening.